In the United States, we are usually fed the same immigration and narrative. The formula usually being a long-suffering family from a poor, backwards, third-world country. He decides to take a dangerous journey to the U.S., the land of freedom and opportunity. Maybe they are feeling civil unrest in their country of origin, and if the story is taking place after the 19th century, they are definitely non-white or at least non-Christian. When they get to the U.S., it is worse than they expected as they, they face overt discrimination and from racist individuals and struggle economically at first. However, through hard work, perseverance, and the support of one's family, they eventually achieve the American dream. Of course, there might be deviations from the formula and added details of nuance, but overall, most people are fed that one story. Thus, erasing the variety of experiences that immigrants can have and the different social factors that can influence the immigration process. That also means that any systemic issues, legal, political obstacles, cultural adjustments, or bureaucratic hurdles real-life immigrants have to go through are never discussed. This oversimplification of immigration means that for Asian-American women, their history, every problem they face, and the diversity of experiences they can have as a race. That's why, for this episode, I want to dedicate time to having a fuller discussion about Asian American women and immigration, as it's an important part of Asian American feminists' fight for equality. Thankfully, I found some people to help me with that. Hi, my name is Camille Montano, and welcome to Asian American Feminist in Training. As I discussed last episode, Asian American women have a long history with immigration, as many of the restrictions placed on Asians specifically targeted women. Immigration often intersects with different issues of race, ethnicity, class, and of course gender for Asian American women. Historically, Asian female immigrants have been seen as a cheap source of labor within the United States, especially during the 1980s when immigration from Asian countries began to increase rapidly. Due to language, education, and geographic barriers, Asian women have traditionally been forced to work in low-wage and low-status occupations, such as within the manufacturing and service industries. Occupations most white, U.S.-born women would not work in. Besides low pay, they often face various forms of labor exploitation such as long work hours and, depending on the job, unsafe working conditions that could cause serious health issues. This is the case in the nail salon industry, which is dominated by female Vietnamese immigrants, an often overlooked industry that is plagued by worker abuse, low pay, and severe health issues such as cancer due to the poisonous nail salon products that workers breed in regularly. Asian immigrant women cannot turn down these jobs, though not just because they have limited options, but because they often have other people relying on them. White feminists often look at women's status within the concepts of home and family to see how their gender shapes their experience. For Asian women, the experiences within in those concepts differentiates due to their class status as taking care of their families is not just a domestic pursuit, but a labor one as well. This is similar to my mom's experience. She came to the United States from the Philippines after high school with her parents and three younger siblings. Being the oldest child in the U.S. at the time, she felt the responsibility to help out her parents and siblings. 
sidebar, yes, I know it's ethically dubious to be interviewing my mom for this, but to be fair, she's not the only woman I talked to for this project, and she's the only one I knew personally before this episode. Also remember, I'm a busy senior in a mostly white city, and this episode is already coming out way later than I intended, so I had to work with what I have. But this is what my mom had to say on the subject. Well... I guess I grew up where the money, like I know that money is is not easily attained. So as soon as I came here, I I worked so hard. I had how many jobs? I think at one point I had three jobs and all my jobs are walking distance each other. I worked at Boston Market in the morning, that afternoon in McDonald's. And then on the holidays, there's also Honey Bay Camp because I have to also give money to my parents to pay for the mortgage The ways in which immigration can intertwine with gender and class for Asian women is why many Asian American feminist groups make immigration either an important issue they fight for, as is the case with National Asian Pacific American Women Forum, or something they devote their entire platform to, such as Asian Women Immigrant Advocate. These groups tend to focus on the intersection between immigration and class, as immigration in many ways is about economics, as coming to and living in the United States can be extremely expensive. Immigrants are not just paying for application and visa fees, but for many other necessary expenses. This could be something along the lines of travel fare, housing, food, transportation, and other situation-specific needs. And anyone who's ever gone crazy on online shopping deals can tell you, even if you buy things that are inexpensive in isolation, if bought alongside other purchases, it can add up to an extremely expensive bill. The immigration process could be expensive even for single women who had been working in their home country for years and were traveling alone. This was the case for Dr. Jin Hammock, a communications professor. She came to the U.S. from South Korea on a student visa in the early 2000s for graduate school. She had worked in South Korea for a number of years before she made the decision to come to study in the U.S. and thankfully had $10,000 saved up before starting the immigration and graduate school process. It costs you money and you gotta, it costs you money to report it. Yeah. Report the score to the school. And I know yeah. there's a secondary test like international students have to take. Yeah, TOEFL. Yeah. It's English test. Like, and how much was it applications for, like, say, the the student visa fee? Um, that was such a long time ago now. It was, like, 11 years ago, like yeah. 12 years ago, actually 13 years ago now. So I have to really think about it. Um, but altogether, I believe I had, like, I had about, like, 10 grand. 10 um, grand? Yeah, I had to, I had to some ten grand saved up, but I spent thousands. Ended up just for applying because. Um, Wait, just to apply for like a visa it took like. No, no, no. Okay. You gotta really think about it because you gotta. Um, there's a lot of things that you need to do in order to yeah. do that. You gotta take the test, right? GRE. Mm-hmm. Each time it costs you about like two hundred dollars or something. Yeah, that's what it took yeah, for me and too. Also. For some reason, there. For some reason, I had to travel to Japan to take the test, and then I had to do it like twice. So altogether, it took me some time. Wait, did um, they not offer it in South Korea? It was offered, but it was all like paper based, and I needed the test results quicker. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah quicker. Mm. So, um, but now, right now, there are more opportunities, and then, and plus, you gotta take the TOEFL test. 
right? And then it also that cost you, I don't know, like $150, $200, like that, right? Yeah. And then you also need to take that a couple of times because if you're lucky, you get, you take one cut, you know, test and then you get the score that you want. Otherwise, you've got to keep taking until you are satisfied, right? Is it? Each time it costs you money. Yeah. And then also, it costs you money to report the score to each school. And then it's not like you're taking, you know, applying to just one school. Yeah. PhD, I applied to 10 different schools just to make sure that I get an admission from at least one, right? She's in like, that can go up to like 50 to $100 per application. Yes. So think about it, it adds up. Yeah. Yes. And, at and the then also, you gotta mail the FedEx it. Oh, shit. Yes. From <laughs> You're South Korea different... to each school. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so they, yeah that like, all adds up. Yeah, and that's just the student stuff that, again, like, doesn't get into, like, the visa and, like, ha- the moving and, like, the plane tickets and, like, all of that just adds uh, up. Did it, like, yeah. completely drain all that money you had saved up? No, I don't, no, I, it didn't completely drain my money, uh, but, but still, I think at least it was, like, costing me thousands <sighs> and, you know, just to apply for it and then just settle down here. Yeah. But moving, you know, coming here and all that. That was just her expense in regard to coming to the U.S. and getting into a good school. When it came to living here, things didn't get much easier. Um, it is not, it is quite rare. Yeah. But, uh, you know, financial support, um, financial aid from schools, and even, so, but, but I was lucky to have some financial aid, yeah. you know, when I got my, when I was accepted at Emerson College um, for masters because I had some good work experience. Still, it was it is not like PhD, you know, doctoral program financial yeah. package. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't cover one hundred percent, and then it just it helps. It certainly helps you with yeah. um, you know tuition, but still you you get to spend a lot of money. Yeah, and living in Boston. <laughs> yeah, high cost so of living. Like, yeah, I was like stupid um broke there you know i was i bought a foot long subway sandwich and then eating half for some lunch and the other half for supper oh god <laughs> living with like three other housemates in order to save money probably i was the um the the i was the the most poor student in my class oh in god my neighborhood but i got by yeah you know? I was like, so I was like living in a, I was a, the most poor student living in a nice city. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Now, before I ruin my own point by focusing too much on economics, there are other issues with immigration. Immigrants can't just come to the U.S. if they have money. They need to be approved by the U.S. government first. The first being the bureaucratic hurdles that can arise. It can take an extremely long time to come to the U.S. as there are many laws in place that that restrict the number of and kind of people that come into the country. Um, the challenge becomes um, is that the politics in the Philippines when it comes to processing your papers takes a really long time. And then on top of that, because now you're a family of seven with my five siblings and my parents, they want to make sure that the people that's petitioning your stay are almost kind of like vetting for you to come to the U.S. is well, able like- to support you. Because then, of course, otherwise, they don't want you to be a burden to the 
country or to the state and end up on welfare or they would have to figure out how to provide housing home and stuff like that for you and they also have to like vouch that this is a productive member of society and all that stuff yes and there's a really big criminal investigation because if you have any kind of criminal records that would automatically not you're not eligible to come here as a I mean, in your own name, because I've known people who've gone illegally come to the U.S. with other suspect backgrounds. So for us, it's It's not just an issue of whether or not you have a criminal record, though, as other things can jeopardize the process. It's always so rigid because the U.S. has always been afraid of illegal or undocumented immigrants coming to the U.S. unfairly and taking the jobs from all the other hard-working native-born Americans or whatever excuse people spout and then you gotta do the paperwork and then in order to do the visa process you gotta get something notarized um like you you have to have the acceptance like you have to have the acceptance letter to prove like hey i'm coming here as a student yes yes acceptance letter and then you need to get a letter from your employer um that you are not just flying to the united states just to you know, illegally, just to stay there. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I'm legitim- legitimately trying to attend school, and I have the money for it. I have. No, I just need to needed to prove that I'm not a person uh, who has nothing here. Yeah. And so that I just so that I can just fly to the United States and stay here yeah. illegally. Yeah. I'm not that person. I needed to prove that. So I needed to provide the, the proof of my uh, employment. Um, that you know, and then also, and 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 then from their perspective, I am not the best person. Um, wait, because I am single. Okay. Wait, you're not the best person. What do you mean by that? What I'm talking about is that okay about the um, um from their perspective, I, I you know I am at the people like risk. issuing the visa. Yes. Visa, yes, because um, if I, for example, if I was married with like two kids, right? And then here, and then if I'm trying to just uh, have a have a, some trip, right, a vacation, then and I have a really good employment here, right? But then they, then they're not gonna question that I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna you know, question that I'm gonna come back, right? Because I have my family here, yeah. I have employment here and my kids here. Uh, but then if I am single, right? Single, yeah. unattached, then they may, they, they may think that, oh, you know, she's just trying to fly to the United States and not come back. So I mean, I have, I have more to prove that, you know, I am not, I'm not that person. The length of time an immigrant has to waste before they're approved to come to the U.S. can vary depending on their country of origins laws, what kind of visa they're using, and how many family members are traveling to the U.S., My mom's immigration process began when she was a baby, and they didn't come to the U.S. until she was 17. And these long waits can lead to some unfortunate consequences for their families. Yeah, so that's one of the happiest and saddest times in my life when you realize after waiting over 10 years to come to America, and your oldest sister at that time when she reaches the age of 18 she's not no longer eligible and considered as a child so my she has my, to start it over 
yeah, my oldest sister automatically got dropped off. So in the airport, when you're so happy going to America, we were also all crying because we knew that my oldest sister will be left behind and to kind of fend for herself. The immigration process often has a way of destabilizing the family and affecting the family dynamics in place. For Asian women, this can put added stressors on the prescribed role of family caretaker, either through isolating them and further tying them to serving their families, or they end up tirelessly working to get the rest of their family to the U.S. People do not often realize that families do not come to the U.S. together. What happens a lot of the time is one family member, usually the man, comes to the U.S. and establishes themselves before petitioning for the rest of their relatives to come. Um, joined them in the U.S. This was the experience of Mary Rose Pedrone's family. She's a diversity coordinator at my college. She is a first-generation Filipino-American, or to put it more simply, the daughter of Filipino immigrants, whose family came to the U.S. through her parents' worker visa. The Philippines is a very poor country, and oftentimes people work in other countries to make enough money to support their children back home, Prior to her birth, Mary Rose's parents often lived in a separate country from the rest of their family just to make ends meet. Yeah, so how long did it take from when they made the decision to everyone's there? Everyone's there and everyone's, like, all settled. I mean, I think that's the question that has... It's an interesting perspective because, as I mentioned in our previous issue or the previous interview about the concept of a latchkey child, which is a child who grew up essentially having to raise themselves and their siblings because their parents were always away at work yeah. trying to provide for the family. So, And my, especially since, like, your siblings would, like, stay in the Philippines while you're, say, your parents were, like, in the Middle East or, like, something. Yeah, so that, that has been the latchkey child experience has been within my family ever since, for generations, to be honest, because, like, my Lola and Lola would always go to work, and then my dad and my mom would have to help raise their own siblings together. And then when it came to my own family, my parents were always away at work. It actually happened that my parents, my dad, and my mom, they worked in the Middle East for a couple years, so my siblings had to stay in the Philippines and were raised by my aunts yeah. and uncles. So... It was always the question of when were we able to finally come together and live together as a family and yeah. be under one household. So that really happened when my mom became pregnant with me and then they were like, okay, this is our fourth child. We want to all be together finally after many years of separation. So that's when they decided to come to the United States. Of course, once you come to the U.S., it is not any easier. Even if you manage to become financially successful and get all your family members there with you, there's a lot of discrimination and immigrants can face. Um, did we, like, for example, like, did white store owners think that we were going to steal stuff if we were in the store? Yes. So we experienced discrimination in that sense. But I think what you're alluding, what you're alluding to in terms of the noticeable accents in um, yeah, my parents' voices. because yeah, we talked about that last time. Yeah. In the corrupted um, file. Yeah, so my because my parents immigrated to the United States and they grew up speaking 
another language other than English, they have an accent or what we consider an accent within the United States, right? Yeah. So when they're talking and when they're navigating just systems within the United States, they are often seen as uneducated because of they yeah. don't have the American accent. So the relation of you're not American, so you don't understand English, so you are not as intelligent as me. That is the uh, struggle that they have always had to face, especially within their hospital environment, because of course they have been educated and understand how to deliver medical instruments or how to do their medical jobs. Yeah. But because of their American peers who couldn't understand them, they had a xenophobic difficulty of feeling less than because their American peers couldn't understand them and didn't want to take the extra step to understand them. So they, in some sense, were seen as incompetent in their jobs. How did that affect their relationship with their patients, though? Yeah, so some of their patients, especially, like, their white patients, like, felt, like, again, talking about the perception of incompetence because there was a language barrier. Their their patients felt like they were not competent to take care of them, so they didn't want to have them as nurses, not only because they were people of color, but because they were immigrants to the United States. So often it was seen as, oh, I don't want them to be my nurses because they're not competent. They don't understand me. They they don't belong in the United States. So that's where the difficulty really comes in. Yeah. The experiences of Dr. Hammock, my mom, and Mary Rose's family share a lot of commonalities, but they are not the same story. Dr. Hammock did not experience a lot of systemic or overt discrimination, thankfully. My mom's young age and Catholic school upbringing meant she didn't have the same language barrier problems as Mary Rose's family. And Mary Rose's parents do want to go back to the Philippines one day. Yet the elements of their stories that they do share point to an immigration system that is designed to perpetuate inequalities and put added stressors onto the lives of people in need, making the qualities of their lives go down financially or emotionally to one degree or another. That's why feminist is especially Asian American feminists fight so hard to reform the system because in many ways it keeps people from achieving the American dream. Yeah, when I was conducting interviews with these three women, an added dimension popped up that while there were difficulties in their journeys and they acknowledged all the inequality is within in the American system, that did not erase why they chose to come to the U.S. in the first place. As for all the unfairness in this country, they believed it was worth it. That was the case though. I spent enough time in the in South Korea before I came here. So I know for a fact that every society has some kind of a yeah. discriminating issue. Yeah. So yeah, so it's just a different different group you know, it's a discrimination against different groups of people, for example. Yeah. Like uh, yeah, so we don't have black, you know, South Korea, for example, there is no black li- lives matter there, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, different, yeah, but then there's a, um, but the gender equality is worse there. Really? Yes. Gender <laughs> equality, equality is getting better, but still, still there's a big um, gap there. And then it's harder for LGBTQ to live there. Yeah, I've heard about uh, that. <laughs> yeah. 
So I mean, so South Korea is still like really kind of conservative. It's changing, changing in a positive way, but still quite conservative. So if you're not, if those you don't, if you don't belong to that really like kind of majority, so-called normal, yeah, you know, category. So if you're not straight, yeah. If you are not just Korean Korean, for example, if you're mixed, oh, before you. Yeah, because yeah. I don't think many, because I definitely know about that, because I don't think many people really understand the fact that in other countries, there is, like, other ethnic minority populations. Yeah, but here, we, this is, we are all, we are all mutts, right? <laughs> yeah, That's what my mutts. mom says. I, I am not, I, yeah, I am an, I'm an exception, but, I mean, just, <laughs> yeah, so this is a common question, what kind of mutt are you, right? Yeah, then I'm like, they might say, you know, yeah, I'm a, um, I have, you know, 30% Irish, um, 50% uh, German, you know, a quarter, whatever. They, they, that's, yeah. that's what you get, but oh. it's common, right? Being the daughter of a Filipino immigrant and knowing my family's story, some of which I'll never talk about publicly, has impacted every facet of my identity, especially my political beliefs and worldview. That's why this episode is really important to me and also probably why it's really freaking long which i'm so sorry if you made it to the end of this as to me being an american is also being the daughter of an immigrant struggle sacrifice love absurdity tragedy joy hope and kind of just plain confusion will always be attached to that if anything at times i feel isolated from my peers whose families have more established histories as they don't seem to understand being an American and being an immigrant, or at least very closely related to them, is the same to me, as one cannot exist without the other. As no matter what a kind of orange blowhard says, as a country, we've always advertised ourselves as that. The people there. Yeah. So, like, there is struggle, there's poverty, there is struggle and there's poverty, and there is inequities within every country. But when you think about the pride, I don't necessarily think, well, you could argue that people who, who share majority identities in the United States have a sense of pride within the, as an American, but there is a specific Filipino pride that is rooted in resiliency. Yeah, sorry, I was just making sure this was okay and I'll cut that part off. No, you're fine. But yeah, and like, it's almost like here for a lot of people that idea is taken for granted whereas when you're from a different country it's almost like emphasized more yeah yeah and like i was reading dragon ladies the asian american feminist book edited by sonia shaw Mm -hmm. and something one of the authors dr karen san juan aguilar sort of brought up is that a lot of feminism is based on the idea of like women's status especially the women's status within the home Mm -hmm. but as she sort of brought up what is home mean to someone who is a considered a perpetual foreigner mm-hmm. especially one to people who have to move that home yeah so if you ask my mom where her home is she would always say the philippines is her home she lives in the united states but her, the philippines is her home yeah so is she constantly treated as a foreigner even to this day of course she is because she does not look like a white person. She does not speak like 
what we would consider with an English accent. And honestly, for the majority of it, her friends and her the people who she regards to as close is still in the Philippines. But when you think about how she identifies, she's still proud to have citizenship. Yeah. Like, you can't take that away from her because you don't think that she's American enough. And that struggle between um, being an American and being the perpetual foreigner is something Asian American women have to struggle with if throughout their entire lives. In conjunction with my personal story, from what I can see for Asian American feminism is inextricably tied to immigration. The history and socio-political reality of Asian American women within the United States does not exist without it. The personal stories I've been sort of showing you guys here today kind of demonstrates that. For if one wants to understand who Asian American women are, you must also understand where they come from.